3: Hoping we find you all in good form on this Wednesday morning, John Paul. Taking your calls at 1850 333 103, texting, whatsapping 0862-103-103. And that rather bizarre incident that happened in Kana and a shocking incident that happened in Kana, uh, making a lot of the papers today. Some people may have seen this up on Facebook because it was posted by the Connor Community Council, and I see Ralph Regal is writing about it in the Irish Independent today. And Conna Community Council posted a photograph of thirteen dead rabbits. They were laid out in a row on a footpath in Connor. but the, and obviously it happened overnight. But the problem was the footpath led or leads to. The local primary school. So a number of children would have been walking along, our parents driving them uh, to school and would have had to pass this line of 13 dead rabbits all laid out in a row. Some of them were only baby rabbits. It's a very, very upsetting photograph. Now, I know the update on the story from Moir and the Blackwater Animal Rescue Group. They're looking into the uh, incident. It seems some of the rabbits had been clubbed to death. Some are saying that this is to do with lamping of rabbits where they dazzle the rabbits and the hares uh, to catch them. Now, I've never been out lamping or dazzling rabbits. When they dazzle them, because I thought it was dogs were used, do they then club them to death? Is, Is that what actually happens? Would that explain how these rabbits died? But they... The bizarre part is why they were laid out in a row, like that. And I mean, if they were done, if it was done, for lamping, do the lampers not take the rabbits and hares, or whatever they they catch not they take them home with them why were they left in Conor why were they laid out along the footpath it really is most bizarre and I know the Garda are uh, looking for any information as is the Blackwater Animal Rescue who are doing their own bit of investigation they're very disturbed by the incidents and they're urging anyone with information to assist with the Garda inquiries if you saw the photograph you'll know exactly what I'm talking about I think John Paul has it up on our Facebook page as well your thoughts welcomed on that as to what you think was going on in uh, Connor, and I really hope that not many children witnessed it and I know it was a local person, I, I know on the Facebook page for Connor, they thanked a gentleman by the name of Patrick for cleaning them away. So well done to Patrick, whoever Patrick is, local man, I take it in Conna, who obviously realised that this was going to be very upsetting for so many people, especially children, and decided to act quickly and removed the rabbits. So whoever Patrick in Conna is, uh, well done. If I had an award to hand out for community spirit, I'd be handing it out to you this morning. So your thoughts welcomed on that, uh, please. National Broadband Plan, we're going to be discussing that and we get to discuss it this morning with the Minister for Agriculture, Michael Crete, who is going to uh, join us. The estimated cost to the Exchequer uh, is €3 billion. When we first started talking about the National Broadband Plan, it would have been back in, would you believe, August of 2012. And I don't have that good a memory I had to do a bit of googling last night to say how am I talking about the National Broadband Plan and it was much fanfare in August of uh, 2012 so we've had a bit of a long wait for it. There are some people being rather cynical about it. Opposition parties are giving out saying this is all to do with European and local elections just around the corner. We really hope that it's not but your thoughts on the National Broadband Plan which will cost the Exchequer now £3 billion. it was £500 million, so a half a billion was the original cost seven years ago now some commentary I was reading last night was saying that technology has changed so much in that time and that that would explain some of the reasons for the additional costs and we know the whole tendering and bidding system changed over the years I mean what started out with was this uh, five or seven five bidders five bidders at the start two dropped out wasn't it yeah that left it with three and then two went two left one and that's the preferred bidder who's the last bidder I love when I see it written as the preferred bidder it's the last bidder it's the only bidder uh, are the company are now going to uh, hopefully fingers crossed install the National Broadband Plan Uh, people as I say critical of the expense to the state of three billion it went up as I say it started out in 2012 at 500 million and then it went to cost throws and it went up to 1 billion and then between December of 2015 and now oh no between 2015 and April of last year it went from 1 billion to 3 billion and it's remain remaining at the 3 billion even though I think the government is saying that is the top line figure there is a contingency uh, included in that figure there is a contingency of 545 million uh, you know some are saying is it value for money if you are living in A very rural area desperately waiting for broadband to arrive. Believe me, you're not worried about the cost of it. You're seeing this as something you have long. Long overdue and long uh, waiting for it. Your thoughts welcome, Donald. Michael and Castletown Bear has already been in to say yesterday will go down in history as the day that rural Ireland was brought out of the depths of darkness by the government to deliver broadband. In rural Ireland today, the most terrible poverty is loneliness and the feeling of being unwanted. But yesterday was the turning of the key to unravel that by the announcement that every home, farm, school, business will have access to high-speed broadband under the National Broadband Plan, which was finally yesterday approved by the government, it will ensure that those of us who live in rural areas will have the same Digital opportunities as those who live in Dublin. For nothing now preventing rural Ireland to start preparing for further meaningful investment. As the word broadband will no longer be an inhibitor. I feel as if I want to scream," says Michael, when I hear some people complaining about the cost. For those of us old enough to remember, the late Donica O'Malley, who walked into the Dáil and announced free education. The Minister for Finance said it would cost. Too much. Uh, we know what happened there. Broadband in rural Ireland will go down in history as equal to free education. A day that will lift it out of the depths of darkness and move it in to modern Ireland. The planning authorities will now have to remodel their thinking with an entirely new train of thought. thinking you and that's a uh, very well put together uh, message from Michael in Castletown Bear. Michael, thank you for that and I think you do sum up for people who live in a rural area desperately waiting for broadband. I mean, even last night on the news, they went out into some rural areas, you know, talking just about how difficult it was. One of the schools of the country was using the example. They do have broadband in the school, but it's the homes where the students live have no broadband. And if they want the children to do any work online, notes coming in from parents saying, sorry, Johnny, couldn't do it last night. We don't have broadband where we live. And even a simple one where the schools and all pupils you've know, you got to pay to do your junior search or you're leaving a search and I'm assuming the Department of Education encouraging everybody to do that online it makes it easier and you know you're not hauling money into school as would have happened in, in times gone by and the school then responsible for collecting up all the money and getting it into the Department of Education so a simpler system of course would be to pay online and this principal was saying that her students became unstuck because they couldn't pay for their junior or leaving search online and I know that's just you know a small example of of what it 's like to live in an area without broadband, but there are many many homes and families businesses are the ones who are going to be the real winners of the national broadband uh, plan and it 's actually I was surprised at the figure i think it is not a million people do not have access to good high quality broadband. I didn't realise that the figure was that high but they reckon that it's up to uh, a million people. So it is a good news story and let's keep our fingers crossed that it will all go according to plan and already had somebody in texting saying how soon will I have my broadband. Uh, There's still more in the process to go and I think, did I read somewhere, we'll get into it in more detail with the Minister for Agriculture later on. I think sort of, is it 2020 we can exceed the first of the houses to be uh, connected. It is, you know, it's going to be rolled out before the whole country or everyone who wants broadband and everyone who's going to get it under this broadband plan. It'll take seven years to complete and I'm assuming the more rural the area you are, the longer it will take to get to you. But I, 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 interesting when Michael is liking it to free education. I was thinking about it and I know back in 2012 when it was first announced, people were talking about it and liking it, in it to rural electrification. And when you think about what happened with rural electrification, I mean, at a time they were saying there was no way that the ESB would be able to get to every home. And they did. And they did it in a very different era. And it was a slow process. What they got around the country, those men, the rural electricians. And and I I know my own father, Lord to mercy him, I don't remember it, but I know I have family members who speak about it, was very much involved. He worked with the ESB. He was very much involved with the rural electrification. So there are some people likening rural broadband when we eventually get it rolled out, as they say. It will take the seven years before we get it fully rolled uh, out. And um, but as I say, some people are saying that they're, they're liking it to the rural electrification. And in the meantime, they also spoke yesterday, and I'll chat with Minister Michael Creed about this. They're calling the broadband connection points and this is going to help business people in remote uh, areas and uh, there's 23 of them planned for Cork and from what I can gather uh, this will boost broadband in the meantime while people are waiting for the broadband to uh, arrive. So your thoughts are welcomed on the National Broadband Plan. Are you excited and delighted as Michael in Castletown Bear is and are you saying to the begrudgers go away and stop begrudging us in rural Ireland. We want and need our uh, broadband. We'll also look at that UN report that came out this week. It's a worrying UN report on climate change and biodiversity. And it is showing that there are about one million species and plants, species of plants and animals that are facing extinction. A million different species of plants and animals. This is a really worrying report out from the UN. Uh, We've had lots of these reports in the past, but I really do think that this one surely has got to be the wake up call only, time uh, will tell. So we'll speak about that on the programme today. We're also going to chat about carers and we want to focus on young carers. These are children under the age of 18 who are doing caring duties at home. Now, the fact that they're under the age of 18, they're in full-time education, so they are going to school uh, every day. Some of them, I'm assuming, exhausted heading into school because they're doing their schoolwork as every other child will be doing. But they also have this additional role at home as acting as young carers. They can be young carers to one of their parents, They can be carers maybe to a grandparent or an elderly relative that's living in the house and they're helping out uh, with the caring. There are some cases where they're full-time carers but in most cases they're helping out the other family member. Maybe the main carer is so stressed out and so exhausted that when the young son or daughter come in from school it's then they take over to give the carer a break or for the carer to do other jobs that need to be done around the house or maybe for the carer to leave and go out and head to work so the young carer is left looking after their their loved ones. There's stories of carers for example looking after younger or older brothers or sisters who are in need of full time care and it's really hard to get an accurate figure on how many carers we have, young carers we have in this country and also what effect is it having because Family Carers Ireland reckon that those young carers are not reaching their full potential Uh, they can't be giving themselves the time to do the required study for example that they need to do for school then when they are in school are they absolutely exhausted because maybe they were up late at night maybe they were woken in the middle of the night maybe they had to get up early in the morning before they came to school to do some caring uh, duties and then you wonder are the schools aware would the school would all of the teachers and the principals of the schools be aware of such a young person in whatever class it is that they're acting as a carer at home and is that important that schools are aware of this caring duty so we're going to discuss that on the programme and actually while I have Catherine Cox on from Family Carers Ireland I saw a piece with her in the paper today to do with housing adaptation grants and it seems in the piece that it's a bit of a postcard lottery depends on what part of the country you live in whether you're going to get one of these housing adaptation Grants. Now, a number of people in Cork got housing adaptation grants in the last year, but there were also a number who were turned down or refused or else there wasn't money there. And if you don't, I mean, if people apply for a housing adaptation grant, they're doing it so that somebody can remain as independent as possible at home. Or it can also be done for the carer. If you if you get proper adaptation done to a house, it makes that caring role a little bit easier for them. You know, maybe putting a hoist in or maybe putting a ramp in if somebody's in a wheelchair makes it easier to get the person in and out of the house. So we will discuss that on the programme today. And it is also... Wednesday. That means Peter Dowdle. the Irish com, will join us after half past 12 today. And I already see Michael in Bantry. Thank you, Michael. His uh, question is in bright and early today for uh, Peter. And I'm smiling at Michael's question because it's a question about an Australian. Tasmanian tree fern and uh, he starts his text with good day so he's very much in an Australian frame of mind uh, this morning so gardening questions get those in throughout the morning 1850 333103 John Paul taking your calls you can text you can WhatsApp 0862 103, 103 Back at its original launch in 2012, the National Broadband Plan was described as the rural electrification of the 21st century. Finally, after a lengthy and complicated process, the Cabinet has agreed to the contract is, is to go to the sole remaining bidder. With his views on the National Broadband Plan, I'm joined by the Minister for Agriculture, Michael Creed. Good morning to you, Michael. Uh, And and you're welcome. Would you agree with that description? It was by the then Minister for Communications, uh, Pat Rabbit, of likening it to the rural electrification scheme. Is it as important as that to rural Ireland?
4: Well, if you're, I suppose, Patricia, if you're one of the 1.1 million people who doesn't have high speed broadband presently, um, you're very much aware that this is a technology that is all pervasive, you know, in terms of the internet of things in terms of data access in terms of doing business in terms of children in school in terms of booking flights and in ways that we you know haven't even imagined yet um so therefore i think the analogy with rural electrification is probably accurate enough um it, I I I think it's costing undoubtedly a shed load of money um 3 billion euros but if you think of it 1.1 million people 3 billion euros over 35 years because uh, the option to manage the network after build out uh is is there for 10 years so 3 billion euros max over that period I think that's an investment that rural Ireland is deserving of, if, if we want to call it a national broadband plan, it has to be delivered to every citizen. And that's what the state is doing.
3: But we started with five bidders. We ended with only one. Are you disappointed with the way the process has gone?
4: Well, I think from the state's point of view, the, the robust nature of the interrogation of bidders uh, was imperative. And we did have, and this is very often forgotten, We did have, have at the penultimate stage, two bidders. So we got from the second bidder a kind of a benchmark against which the the level of subsidy that would be required. They subsequently fell out of the process. But it is very often and sometimes conveniently forgotten that ESP stroke uh, Vodafone in the company called Ciro Mm. was in the bidding process at the penultimate stage. So it's not that we are captured by the sole remaining bidder. Um, this has been true a very very rigorous assessment I mean people criticised us because it took so long, it took so long because this is complex, we're talking about a contract a draft contract of 1500 pages uh, with you know minutiae in, in, in the detail that's mind boggling um, so it was imperative that we got it right uh, it was always going to be expensive because we're talking about an area of the country that none of the commercial operators will deliver broadband without a state subsidy, that's why we have to have the state intervention. We've a situation since the privatisation of Aircom back in 1999 where telecommunications is a private sector business in Ireland. And one of the downsides of that privatisation is not so much the privatisation per se, but in fact that we privatise not just the service but we also privatized the hardware that was used to deliver the services, the poles, the ducts, the wires all around the country. And that has made this process probably more expensive than it might otherwise have been. And that's why in the overall context of considering how to deliver this, in fact, one of the things that was considered was should we buy back air and and put it into national ownership But that was deemed to be, you know, too expensive. 64% of air was traded in 2018 at a cost of £3.5 So the buyback would be in the region of £5 And then because of state aid rules, you couldn't simply mandate a state-owned company. You'd have to go through a bidding process again. Um, So all options were exhaustively considered. And we're at a situation where this is the best way to proceed now.
3: But did it cost more because there was only one bidder remaining?
4: No, and I I think I mentioned earlier, what is sometimes conveniently forgotten is there were two bidders in the system at the penultimate stage when people were asked, you know, to pony up uh, two bidders. And the cost hasn't
3: changed since then?
4: No. When there was two One one bidder has since dropped out, but what that gave us was a capacity to benchmark one submission against the other. And it it gave us an indication of what the level of subsidy that would be required to encourage a private sector provider to get involved in delivery of broadband where no private sector would go without state subsidy.
3: OK, and you also mentioned it's either going to be over 25 years or, thir- or, or 35 years because there is the the additional um, ch- choice uh, to let the contractor stay on for the extra 10 years. But at the end of it, will the government own the network? at some stage.
4: it won't. And I I appreciate that that's one of the issues that, you know, at face value looks uh, to jar somewhat with with citizens and taxpayers. And I'll tell you the reason why. A lot of the cost, uh, probably in excess of a billion euros, will be over that period paid to air for use of, to lease access to their facilities, their poles, their ducts. So we will be hanging our fibre on a network that's already there. The alternative would be, and I'm sure your citizens would find this absolutely ridiculous, would be to build a parallel network. State broadband poles and and wires going up one side of the road and the existing infrastructure there. That would be crazy. So what we're doing is leveraging from uh, the existing networks that are there uh, and delivering it in the most cost-effective way. We will be required, obviously, to build some additional networks to collect uh, you know houses in rural Ireland uh, we will use ESB networks where that's appropriate and and all of that exhaustive detail has been gone into in the context of this engagement with the, the ultimate uh, sole remaining bidder
3: Okay a number of listeners asking pretty much the same question uh, people waiting on, on broadband will it cost the con- consumers if you're living in a very remote area will you have to pay for the connection?
4: No, the, the connection rate will be uh, fixed for all consumers. It'll be no different uh, connection fee than somebody who's p- presently living, you know, I- in an area where there is access to high-speed broadband. The connection fee will be the same. You will then have, once we have built through this consortium, the 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 network. Then all of the uh, retail providers, whether it's Netflix or whether it's others, will come onto the onto the 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 infrastructure and sell their product to the end consumer. So what you buy uh, will depend on what you pay, but the the the, the connection fee will be the same for all and similar to what's charged in in areas that currently have commercial
3: access. Okay, and I know it's going to take about seven years to roll it out before everyone uh, is connected. Uh, So there's going to be a wait for some people. But I was reading um, last night about these broadband connection points. Um, And there could be 23 of those for Cork.
4: Yes, what, what that is a reflection of is, look, it is going to take some time. And there are communities that are currently have no access. So they're going to put in hubs in schools, community centres, all around the country and a substantial number of them in Cork, as you said, so that as individuals await the delivery, and unfortunately this is uh, you know a significant contract that will take a number of years to build out. Um, In year two, for example, we'll be connecting in the region of 100,000 and something similar in the years thereafter. But overall it's going to take seven years to complete the contract. In the interim, people will have to have access to... High speed uh, broadband. So, something like hot desks that are available at the moment uh, in in, in certain settings, this will be made available at at a a whole host of other locations around the country uh, so that communities uh, can bridge the, the digital divide in an interim manner.
3: OK, opposition parties obviously are coming out saying that you're using the national broadband plan to bolster your chances in the U- European and local elections. But you would say they would say that, wouldn't they? But well, I, I mean, take you back to the event centre. This is, you know, there was a big announcement at the event centre yesterday really was just uh, that the, we have the preferred bidder. There wasn't a contract signed yesterday.
4: No, I mean, and, and very clear, what we have done now is identified the the, the uh, preferred bidder, and it'll proceed now over the coming months to signing a, a detailed contract. The draft is in the region of 1,500 pages. But in a way, in terms of opposition parties, uh, and particularly Fianna Fáil, I mean, they're going to have to decide one way or another, are they for broadband for a million citizens in rural Ireland or against it? That's the net question. This is costly, undoubtedly there has been a very rigorous assessment process. Fianna Fáil were quite happy up to now to point the figure and and, and say there was no broadband plan. And now when, when, when it's published, we're electioneering. They can't have it both ways.
3: OK, and I can see a lot of our listeners are just, just want the broadband in sooner rather than later. Heidi says, would you ask Minister Creed, please? He's been saying that no private company will invest in rural areas unless government invests too. Would you agree that rural Ireland is always left on the long finger for all of these things? Uh, Dublin is not just Ireland.
4: Well, absolutely, I agree. And that's why the government was seized with the concept from day one that complex and expensive as it is, The national broadband plan should be about delivering equality of opportunity for all citizens. And we are bridging that digital divide now in terms of this contract.
3: OK, and just one final question, and this is on a slightly different subject. Could you ask the Minister what he's actually doing to alleviate the terrible conditions and suffering of hundreds of thousands of uh, live animals every, every week through the shameful and barbaric practice of live exports from Ireland? And I know I saw a couple of texts in. I haven't seen this a video that's going around of baby calves um, because I just can't watch the, 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 those videos. Um, but uh, your view on that, uh, Michael, live exports?
4: Well, my view, first of all, is um, in terms of the video, and I've seen it, and it is appalling. Um, and, and those that are involved, I understand, have been arrested by French authorities, Great. and that's in in, in in process now, and that's right and proper, and I hope they fail, face the full uh, rigours of the law. Live exports is a critically important part of the agricultural industry in Ireland, and I am a supporter of, but I've always made the point, I am a supporter of highly regulated welfare in this industry and have not compromised one iota, notwithstanding pressure from various quarters to do so. We operate a higher system of animal welfare regulations in the transport of cattle and calves than is the minimum requirement from the EU. And we do so because it's significantly more important to us. And I believe it is possible to have a highly regulated, uh, animal welfare-friendly live export trade and this department and i will have no truck with anybody who breaches those regulations but it must be said it must be said in the context of the recent video that was not involving Irish individuals. It was involved, it it was uh, an incident that happened in France. An isolated incident in a Lairidge facility in Sherbrooke.
3: Yeah. All right, listen, Michael, we leave it there. Thank you for that and thanks for joining us on the programme. Thank Uh, you very much. Good morning to you. That is the Minister for Agriculture, Michael Creed, and actually I can see a number of people uh, because it it must have been on primetime last night. Did did they show the piece on primetime last night? I know it was doing the rounds of the internet yesterday and I, I read the commentary on it rather than watch the video. just I find it very difficult uh, to watch any of those animal cruelty uh, videos but a lot of people saying that they're very very shocked uh, by the scenes and it was shown on TV last night 1850 333103 John Paul taking your calls you can text to WhatsApp 0862 103 103
5: This summer thousands of people will love this feeling you can experience it too C103 invites you to run the Irish Examiner Cork City Marathon Sunday, June 2nd. Whatever your fitness, whatever your goal, whatever your reason, we want you to hit the streets. Hit the streets. Alive. Join a relay team or go solo in the half or full marathon. Register now at corkcitymarathon.ie. Corkcitymarathon.ie. The Irish Examiner Cork City Marathon Sunday, June 2nd with C103 Record today on C103 Text or WhatsApp Patricia with your comment 086
3: 103, 103 Now according to the United Nations first comprehensive report on biodiversity People are putting nature in more trouble now than at any other time in human history with extinction looming over one million species of plants and animals. Joining me from the group Stop Climate Chaos Coalition is uh, Catherine Devitt. Good morning to you, Catherine. Good morning. You're very welcome. Now, this report runs to over a thousand pages. Uh, What are we as humans doing that is reducing biodiversity?
6: Okay, so the report identifies that some of the main drivers um, of biodiversity loss are uh, how we manage our land, the impact on habitat because of that, um, how we uh, climate change, so our activity on the climate, our impact on the climate, how much we consume, and then uh, things like uh, mining and resource extraction, water extraction. Um, So essentially um, the impacts of, of how we organise ourselves kind of economically and socially, how we get around and and what we eat and how we eat and so on.
3: But there are a number of things we're doing. It isn't just one thing that we can point to and say that's the reason for it. Uh,
6: it's a it's, it's, it's number of things. So uh, one of the big um, identifiers within the report um, is the impact of, say, um, quite intensive and large-scale agriculture. Um, and that comes down to our dietary choices, how how we consume our food, how we produce our food. And then of course, uh, climate change. So that comes down to how we get around, how we transport, uh, how we use energy, how we produce energy and so on. And so it's it's a whole range of of, uh, different human activities. And I suppose one of the interesting findings for me is um, how a lot of the changes, a lot of the large scale changes um, on biodiversity, have really happened over the past couple of decades. So we're not talking about human activity over the past couple of hundred years. It's really been in the last, you know, 40, 30 years uh, where we've seen the greatest impact. And um, so, for example, three quarters of land has been uh, significant, significantly altered within the last number of decades because of, of how we produce our food and the impact then on, on habitats, and on forestry and on the species then within
3: those habitats. But I think quite shocking to see that figure of, you know, one million species of plants and animals facing extinction. I mean, is this the strongest call we have ever seen for reversing the the trends on the loss of nature?
6: Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, it certainly is. And I think that's because of the evidence is now unfolding. And, you know, I'm sure all of us growing up, I grew up on a small farm uh, here in Wicklow. And, you know, you can remember uh, uh, life in the countryside. And certainly now that's changing, um, that that we, we can see that there's an absence of, of wildlife. And, and it's not just a problem for countries elsewhere. It is a problem here in Ireland. As a coalition group, you know, we're very much interested in in reducing um, and tackling climate change, particularly in terms of what our policy decision makers, what our political representatives are doing. And there's certainly a strong case that if we protect nature and work with nature, we can actually prevent dangerous climate change as well. And I think that's a really important point going forward. Here in Ireland, we have some beautiful peatlands, a unique ecosystem here to Ireland, and we we are actively destroying those peatlands. So there's a big question here for our policymakers in terms of, you know, our key decisions going forward. We have some wonderful hedgerows here in Ireland that uh, unfortunately we're not very good at managing. And hedgerows are not just wonderful for, for biodiversity, for bird life, wildlife, but they're also great in terms of storing carbon. Um, so I think again, some really important questions going forward. In
3: the yeah, because the I, I, because I was going to I put it to you. You know, we're a small nation. What can we do? But there, there actually, there's a lot we can do. I mean, if nothing else, live up to our commitments um, to the Paris Agreement
6: yeah absolutely we live up to our commitments to the paris agreement and also live up to our commitments under under the sustainable development goals so obviously the paris agreement is very much centered on on climate change within the sustainable development goals uh, there's lots of targets and objectives around uh, water quality around um, obviously climate change and then in terms of biodiversity on soil quality as well and i think the really important thing to remember here is that you know if we destroy nature um, if we impact on the climate it has consequences for our economy it has consequences for our health and it has consequences for our well-being and therefore we urge that you know any decisions by politicians going forward put nature and put climate at the center of decision making because if not we are going to see the implications for how we produce our food we need pollinators to produce our food and that's a problem that's that's an issue here for ireland as well as every other country on the planet, without our pollinators, I, I think the report said that 75% of global food crops require pollinators. So our bees, our bees, for example, and if we don't have that. Our food security is threatened. Water security is threatened. So you know this isn't just uh, 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 this isn't just something that's kind of separate for us. We we need nature for our own livelihoods, for our own well-being, and therefore you know we would urge that our decision makers put nature and put climate at the core of of policy decision-making. Well said.
3: Well said. Okay, we leave it there, Catherine. Thank you for that, and thanks for joining us. Thanks for having Good me. morning, care, bye dear. Bye-bye. Bye bye, Catherine Devitt of the Stop Climate Chaos
2: Coalition. You're listening to Cork Today on replay. Phone and text lines are currently closed
3: your thoughts coming in on the broadband and our chatting in the last hour with the Minister for Agriculture Michael Creed on his views on the National Broadband Plan that moved a step further yesterday. Elizabeth in Ballynoe says, Lea said a few months ago that we will not be able to get to every little house on a hill. So I'm wondering what's going to happen now. Well that's all contained in the National Broadband Plan. I think it's not everyone's going to be able to get uh, fibre uh, but they'll be offered something else instead and that's why the cost of this plan is costing so much because the plan is there, if, if you live on a little house on a hill in the middle of nowhere and you want broadband then you should be entitled to it but of course there will also be the argument that not everyone's going to want broadband that's the other side of it uh, as well Frank in Kinsale says what happens in 10 years when this one company will look for extra money as they don't have enough to roll out the broadband why do they always have just one operator? Isn't it the same as the children's hospital, the event center, etc.? Why didn't they give this? Why didn't they give this money to respect of the dead? Look what's going on in Waterford. Help them to finance a new mortuary, please. Maybe hold off on the broadband and look after what we have now on this planet. Now I don't know, um, Frankie Kinsale. Well, I take it you're in Kinsale, so you're not one of the people living in a very rural area that doesn't have access to broadband for the million. For the million, yeah, for the million people who don 't have access to broadband, yesterday was a very, very good news news story and it's it 's interesting anyone who's very welcoming of what was announced yesterday are people who are desperately in need of broadband they're not that worried about the cost. They just want to get the broadband. Martin, thank you for your call. Martin in Skibbereen says it doesn't make sense that the state will now not own the network. Why are they investing all of this taxpayer's money when we won't own it at the end of the day? Why are they giving money uh, to a private company? It's a joke. Well, I think Michael Creed explained that quite well that if we were to go down the, if the government were to go down the route of doing it themselves like what they did for example for rural electrification it would cost a lot more and they'd have to have um, the the cost side of it, that's why they bring in the private contractor who will have to maintain the network as well. It isn't just as simple as putting in the network. There's a lot of money involved in uh, maintaining it. But yeah, I know one of the biggest criticisms of it is at the end of the 25 year contract, they can go for an extension of an extra 10 years the bidder has the obligation to maintain the service for an extra 10 years in the, in this the contract. Well the contract hasn't been signed but what was agreed yesterday and after that then it'll be up to the regulator or the government of the day to decide how much the bidder can then charge people because people are worried that it will, will it go up at the end of the uh, 25 uh, years. Um, Lehman Middleton says AIR who pulled out of the National Broadband Scheme are going to make a nice little earner out of this one aren't they? Because they're going to use some of AIR's infrastructure. Uh, Lehman Middleton reckons they can make up to a million euro. Yeah, air will do well and the ESB networks will do well because they're going to use the ESB poles and the air poles. That seems to be uh, what's going to happen. Niallin Carrigaline uh, wonders, does Michael Creed think selling telecom air and off was a mistake now as the state does not own the infrastructure or have a say in it, at least with the ESB networks? The State still has uh, a say um, is he regretting does Mike unfortunately he 's off the the line at the moment, so i can 't put that question to him even though we did we did uh, touch on it i don 't know if he i 'd like to listen back to the interview I don't know if he said that he regretted it i don 't know if we touched on regretting it uh, or not okay then on biodiversity and the piece that we did in the last hour to do with this report that came out this week from the UN on climate change and biodiversity and the that we are the nature is in more trouble now than it has been in any other time in human history with extinction looming for one million species of plants and uh, animals. A couple of people commenting on that. Uh, Tom says, biodiversity is in serious decline in rural areas. Intensive farming is destroying habitats for wildlife and water quality. Minister Creed should introduce an agri-environmental scheme for farmers who are not intensive and farm in harmony with nature, says uh, Tom. That sounds like that. That could be a great, great scheme. And Mag says, if we go vegan, look at the cost of the universe of production and transport and packaging, etc. Uh, says Mags. Well, it is one of the things that I touched on with um, Catherine Devitt when she was talking. She was saying it's the way we eat and the type of food we are eating. In the ideal world, you would only eat food that's grown locally. But our taste buds have changed and we want to eat Exotic fruit and vegetables that's grown many, many tens of thousands of miles uh, away, but you don't have to eat like that. And if this particular report isn't a wake up call, that we all need to change our habits. And that's what Catherine was saying from her group. But that's what we need to do. We need to look at the way, what we're eating and how we're eating. And maybe we all need to be leaning more towards making sure that when you buy items, that there are items that were produced locally. I know there was five ways the report showed that we could reduce biodiversity. And one was... Turning this is, the, this is what we're doing wrong. We're turning forests, grasslands and other areas. We're turning them into big, large farms and we're turning them into cities. We're building on them. We're overfishing the oceans. We've been saying that for years. We're permitting climate change by burning f- fossil fuels for as long as I've been doing this programme which is now 30 years that's been a bone of contention and a discussion that we need to wake up and look at the burning of fossil fuels we're polluting the land and water everybody would agree with that and we're also one of the things that came out of this report is we're allowing invasive species to crowd out native plants and animals and if you look at the giant ragwort, that um, not wheat. Sorry, that's growing all over the country. That's an invasive species and look what that is uh, doing. So, I mean, while this is, a, they're saying that this report that runs to, us, it runs to over a thousand uh, pages is a real wake-up call. A lot of what's contained in it we've known about, but when it's all been put together in this report and all of these scientists uh, got together to put this report uh, together, but it was, I think, what's come out of it is that statistic of the million species of plants and animals facing extinction. That to me was the real shock in that particular uh, report. Well Sandy says I do not take the evidence of loss of wildlife lightly but I think hitting at all farmers and those who cut turf for their own use is a little bit unfair. Driving along I've noticed the use of herbicide instead of trimming. Only this morning on the N71 I saw roadside grass briars etc chemically burnt for about a stretch of 50 metres and says so Sandy I think this is illegal in a housing estate I saw grass spray burnt around trees and down drain covers etc instead of cutting there's a lot of things that we are doing so, so uh, wrong. Thank you for your texts to 0862103103 And Jim by WhatsApp says, Morning Patricia. It's amazing how the post office has been blowing their own trumpet. Well, rather than the post office on post, I'm assuming you will say, blowing their own trumpet. With the closing of a lot of small towns, but they say they provide, this is on post, say they provide a better service. But they've increased the cost of a postage stamp. I posted a birthday card to my daughter who lives in Spain. I sent it on the 25th of April hoping to get there by the 6th of May for her birthday. Alas, no. As this morning, no sign of her birthday card yet. Maybe, fingers crossed, she might get it tomorrow. And yes, I remember when I lived in London three days and I would have a letter from my mam from back home. But them days are long gone now. It's the times we live in, I suppose. I blame, this is Jim, I blame taking the bicycle away from the postman and giving them vans. Let me tell you now, don't... Didn't you see a lot more postmen when they were out cycling, just like the Gardaí? Bring back the man on the bicycle, especially for people who deliver a service, says Jim. Don't know if there's any postmen or postwomen listening, how they would feel about being on bikes. There is a postman in my neighbourhood who goes around on a bicycle, I have to say. But there are yes, there are a lot less postmen and women on bicycles. And obviously, if you put them into vans, they can do they can deliver more post, and they can get to more houses. But I don't know if it's the lack of postman on bikes, Jim, is the reason that your letter is taking longer. I'm, I don't know, at, at Spain, I think at Christmas is the only time I have a, a friend in Ibiza that I sent a Christmas card to. So that's about the only time I post a card to Spain. I don't know what it is. Is that the Spanish postal service is slower? Because we have a pretty good postal service in this country. I mean, I would say 99% is next day delivery. If you get it in in time, if you're in by five o'clock and you're posting to anywhere in the country, you know, nine out of 10, I'd say even more, I would say 99 High percentage will get next day delivery it 's when it goes out of the country that 's when it gets a little bit more complicated and it goes into the spanish Spanish postal system so i don't know if you can directly blame on post, but that does seem like a very long time for a letter to get from Ireland to spain twenty fifth of April and today we are at the eighth of May and it still hasn't arrived. I've, I have a sister in law who lives in Australia and I send parcels and cards there. And I, hand and heart, it doesn't take that long to get to Australia. So I don't know what the problem is with Spain. Does anybody else regularly post to Spain? Because I'm straight away. Fearful, Jim, for you that the card's got missing. I hope it hasn't. I really hope it hasn't because it's and it is very disappointing. And you did send it, you did, you were allowing plenty of time for your daughter to receive the card. And it's so disappointing for your loved ones overseas because there's nothing like the card, the birthday card in the post from a loved one overseas. So I can sense your disappointment on behalf of your daughter as well. But we'll put it out to see is it Spain? Is it the postal service in Spain? I'm wondering. Do they... Are they just a bit slower? Maybe. I don't know. 1850 333 103. Lines are open. Text or WhatsApp. I can see gardening questions. Keep them coming for Peter after half 12 today. 0862 103 103.
2: The latest jobs on C103. Official media partner of the Irish Examiner Cork City Marathon Sunday, June 2nd. Get working now to run the full half or relay. More details at c103.ie.
3: Experienced painters are wanted for Cork City and County. Now, your own transport and you need to have your own tools uh, as well. Blackwater Metal Recycling, they're based in Bohapwe. They're looking for a truck driver with a full CE driving licence, please. While a restaurant supervisor and bar staff are wanted for the Harbour Bar, that's in West Cork, and a drone pilot first time that's come up on the job spot, uh, slash video camera operator wanted for part-time work. You'll find all the details and more job opportunities by going online now. Just go to c103.ie forward slash jobs for more. This is the Cork Today replay on C103. According to Family Carers Ireland there is a lack of clarity in just how many young people care for loved ones in this country. To talk about the problems facing our young carers, I'm joined by Catherine Cox of Family Carers Ireland. Good morning to you, Catherine. Good morning, uh, and, and you're welcome. When a young person takes up the role of caring, you initially think of this must have a huge impact on their education?
7: It, it can certainly, Patricia. And um, I would always start by saying there are different types of young carers. Um, so many young carers in this country may have a sibling, a brother or a sister, who may be born with a disability. And so quite often a young person, I suppose, eases gently into that role maybe as that child um, grows and gets older. So it is very much part of their family life. And, you know, they may begin by helping their mum or dad entertain that young person in the evening, maybe read to them. And so that role tends to grow. And that is probably a high number of young carers in this country. But then I suppose at the other end of the scale, we certainly do have young carers who take on far greater um, role in terms of caring for a loved one. And that could be a parent. Um, maybe with a disability or who has become very ill, or it could be in a family perhaps where there are addiction issues. So that would be, I suppose, the more extreme cases. And certainly in those cases, we would find that young people's education can suffer. And also, you know, their ability to get out and socialise with their friends and do the normal things that a young person should be doing. So for those particular cases, we are extremely cognizant that we have to work with and the social services to ensure, and the, the health services and our educators to ensure that those young people do not miss out on their education and do not suffer as a result of their caring role.
3: To, and I take for some, they don't even identify themselves as carers.
7: They don't. And, you know, there can be a stigma around it for a young person. They may not want to say and stand up in school and say, you know, I care for my brother or my sister or I care for my mom or my dad. So it is really important that our educators, our teachers um, are able to recognize, you know, where there is a caring role in a family. And, for example, there's no register in schools at the moment for young carers. Um, And if that was there, at least it would give their teachers an opportunity to support those people even if that's done quietly without naming the issue in the classroom they could still support them to for example ensure that they get their homework done in the evenings or if they don't that they're not punished for that there's an understanding yeah and and and
3: do you do you believe that there are uh, a number of pupils who are in school whose teachers are completely unaware of what's going on at home
7: i i know there are i mean we we would have our young care of the year awards every year and from those young carers being identified, quite often their schools didn't know before they got that award that they were young carers. Um, And they have said that to us. And they have said that it has actually made their school life a lot easier in many cases, because there is that understanding there. And also there's understanding amongst their peers as well. And young people, you know, can be very supportive when they know what's going on um, in somebody else's life. So we need to, I suppose, remove that stigma around the fact that young carers, um, what they do, the work that they do, and try and get more people talking about it. And by talking about it, then we're raising awareness about who young carers are and hopefully getting more support for them.
3: And on to support. What support is is currently available for them?
7: <clears throat> Unfortunately, there, there is little. I mean, Family Cares Ireland, we would have one young carers officer who... Is, looks after the whole country um, and that's the only funding we get um, for that role. Um, so we would provide information for young carers, we would have online groups, um, chat rooms where young carers can talk to other young carers and support one another. Uh, we have a weekend coming up actually quite soon, it's um, in June 21st actually and it's a respite weekend for young carers and we hope we'll have, think about a hundred young carers will join one another, yeah, and go away for the weekend. And it's in the Midlands. And those young carers will come together. There's loads of activities for them over that weekend. And it's a fabulous weekend for them to get away from their caring role, but more importantly, to mix with other young carers. Um, and share their experiences their challenges um, and it's a fabulous weekend we can only do it once a year and you know we can only do it for a hundred young people um but we'd love to do it more and it's certainly something that we're looking at to try and expand and that but that brings
3: me back to to what i put in the introduction about assessing you know how many i mean how is there a way of assessing how many young carers we do have in this country there
7: is. First of all, um, it could be done in the census. Um, and we have a census coming up, um, I think, 2021. Um, and there is a question in the census around young carers. Um, but again, it does go back sometimes to this idea of the self-identification. And if a young person or a family don't self-identify that they have a young carer, they may not tick that box. So I think the best place to do it would be within the schools. And if there was a register for young carers within the education system, I believe that would be the best way. There was a survey done in 2014 um, within the schools, and they actually found that about 11% of young people between the age of 10 and 17 take on, have a caring role. So that figure is about 59,000 young carers. Wow. And I believe that is the most accurate figure we have. Um, so if we're looking at 59,000 young people across the country providing levels of care, then it is vital that we support them to remain in education, to go on to third level education and, you know, for them to reach the, whatever they want to do, reach their full potential. And that can only be done by putting support in in the schools, even something like introducing an awareness about what caring is into the school curriculum in primary school and secondary. That would help people to recognise who carers are and the fact that it is probably happening in most families, you know, at some stage uh, in their lives, that there is a caring role. I would say practically in, uh, I know one in ten people in this country at the moment are family carers by twenty thirty, one one in five people will be family carers. So it's, it's hitting most families and will hit most families at some point.
3: And there is that real danger that without the supports, those young people just simply will not reach their full potential.
7: Absolutely. And, you know, I had a lovely call from a young carer, a young care's mother yesterday. Um, Jamie Mooney was our young care of the year in 2016. Um, and he helped care for his mom, still does, but he, he's about 23 now, I think. But he went on, he was young care of the year, and his mom said it really brought him out of himself. He was able to speak publicly about it. And this week he's one of the top five in a an Ireland competition um, for young chefs. and she said yeah and she said it was incredible but she reckoned without him getting that award a number of years ago he never would have spoken out and she said she watched him blossom as a result which I felt was a fabulous thing to hear from our perspective. Yeah. You know, that it raised awareness and it got him talking about it. And she just, yeah, she called to tankers and say it meant so much to their family. So
3: Yeah, because I, I, I do think those awards that you do are great because they get a lot of media publicity then and, you you know, you'll see pictures in the papers and stories on the papers and yes. I think people are quite taken aback because nobody knows what goes on behind closed doors.
7: This is it and that's the same for any carers. Like, quite often, Somebody's neighbour could be caring and they may not even know. And again, sometimes, particularly if you're looking at, you know, maybe somebody caring for someone with mental health issues um, or Alzheimer's, dementia, that sometimes, you know, that stigma prevents people looking for help or talking about what they're doing. So so for us, it's so important that people, first of all, self-identify that they are family carers. And secondly, that they go out, and seek support and support. As an organisation, Family Care's Ireland, we have a free phone care line that carers can call, and that's one eight hundred twenty four oh seven twenty four. And we have volunteers there who are there to listen and advise. And we also have a centre there in Cork in Tuckey Street, uh, and Peter Cox is our manager. And again, you know, people can call in have a chat and we can give them information, but also training if they need it. Um, And there are other supports there, such as in-home respite as well, that carers can avail of. So it's so important that they do reach out um, and get the support that they need.
3: Okay, and I would see on the paper today, this is on the Irish Independent, a piece Mm. that you're mentioned in, and this is to do with the housing and mobility grants. And it's a postcard, postcode lottery, it seems. Depends on where you are in the country, because these are administered by the individual local authorities.
7: Mm, They are, by the councils. And again, it goes back to what we keep saying, that where you live in this country determines what support as a carer you will or you won't get. Um, And if you look at the the funding for housing adaptation grants, back in 2010, the funding for housing adaptation grants was £95 And in 2019, this year, it is 23 million less than it was in 2010, despite the fact that we have a, an Asian population, far more people living with disability who will require these grants. So as the demand goes up, the funding has gone
3: down. And, now, the, and the, an reason, the reason, the reason that they give do they give a reason for why the funding has been reduced? Well, the funding reduced over the years of austerity, so okay. when we saw
7: cuts, but it hasn't come back to even where it was in 2010. So while, you know, other areas in the country have begun to see the growth and, the you know, the the progress unfortunately this hasn't and we've seen small increase we saw eight percent increase in that funding from last year but that is nowhere near you know the 20 million short that we are from 2010 Um, and those grants as you said they are administered by local councils some families are waiting two years in fact in some areas families are waiting three years for a housing adaptation grant and we have come across families, and I said this in the article, where the person has passed away uh-huh. before they were able to get the grant and the
3: fact and, that. And, and the to. type of work, I mean, you think of um, downstairs toilet, getting a ramp fitted, Absolute a hoist, that, that, it's, that, it's that type of work.
7: It is. And what happens is, first of all, there's such a long period when the per- application goes in to whether they're approved. Then they have to get a number of quotes. Then they're waiting again for maybe somebody to come in and do the work they need an occupational therapist in. So the whole process takes such a long time. And then, as I said, funding is not adequate. So people are placed on a waiting list. In some councils, they close the waiting list after three months. So they say then after three months, they have no more on the waiting list. But that's not because there isn't more people needing the grant. It's because they've closed their waiting list. So the figures, again, are inaccurate. Um, And again, it's down to where you live, whether you will get uh, the grants or not which That's is a real extremely
3: shame. unfair That's a real shame and just once again uh, people can contact Family Carers Ireland 1800 24 07 Catherine a pleasure as always to talk to you thank you for that and thanks for joining us Thanks so much thanks, uh, Good morning to you bye bye that is Catherine uh, Cox of Family Carers uh, Ireland Hi uh, Patricia says somebody is this an email or or, or came in on Facebook sorry um, I've been asked to say hi to Timmy O'Sullivan in Charleville is his birthday today. His wife Maria, Ian, Molly, Timmy, Owen, and Tracy, Nolene, and the grandchildren Dylan, Emma, and Ben wanting to wish. Um, Tim, a very happy birthday. And I thought I better play it now because he's listening to us in the car at the moment. So happy birthday, Tim O'Sullivan in Jarreville. Hope you're having a wonderful day. And thank you to Margarita, who says the horses that we announced as missing. Do you remember earlier I mentioned there were horses missing? The gentleman contacted us from the uh, Allen's Bridge area of Kanturk. Margarita's been on to say that there are two horses loose in the Island Wood, and they have been for the last few weeks now the horses we were talking about went missing last week I wonder what Margarita says the last few weeks what does she mean is she just talking about last uh, week Margarita says seven people walking in the island wood have seen them we'll get in contact with the gentleman and maybe send him out there just to see it could be one and the same horses who knows but thank you for contacting us 1850 333 103 text or whatsapp 0862 103 103
5: this summer thousands of people will love this feeling. You can experience it too.
0: Feeling
5: of life. C103 invites you to run the Irish Examiner Cork City Marathon, Sunday, June 2nd. Whatever your fitness, whatever your goal, whatever your reason, we want you to hit the streets. Hit the streets. Team, or go solo in the half or full marathon. Register now at corkcitymarathon.ie. Corkcitymarathon.ie. The Irish Examiner Cork
3: City Marathon Sunday, June second. With C103. And going to the phone lines because I want to go to Helen, uh, who joins me. Good morning to you, Helen.
9: Mirgut Armad Patricia I'm, I'm
3: and I'm very good. It grew
9: I am I cost. I am in a state.
3: Okay, what's, what's happened here? Very
9: you? small. All that happened, and I nearly preferred to lose my engagement ring after <laughs> 45, 40, 46 years than lose what I lost. What it was was that the young grandchild, he's eight years of age in Galway, I told him to keep quiet one day and write a poem while we were going somewhere. And when he gave me the poem, I realised it was quite an extraordinary poem. It was called Blinded, Tandle. And even the paradox alone, the title alone, was extraordinary for an eight-year-old. Absolutely. And, no, I really detest grandmothers that boast about their <laughs> grandkids. <laughs> 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 I'm not into that. But just to explain what kind of a young fella is, his name is Ryan O. And when he was three, he said to his mother, "I'm reenawg. That sounds like rogue. You may call me Rogie. So I call him Rogie ever since. That's his nickname, Rogie. But Grant, I he wrote the poem. I put it into a. I tore it out of the notebook It was in. The notebook was half A4 sized and plastic, uh, a pinkish, I think pinkish plastic cover on the front of it. And I put the two torn off sheets inside the plastic, but there was an elastic hoop across it to hold
3: the... To keep it closed, yeah.
9: And keep it closed. And you could clearly see the childish writing inside. So I ran in to... The library yesterday, as it was uh, at about uh, uh, five past five, in tranquility. Clown, and I thought it was open to half five. It is, but the computers are only open until ten past five. So I don't need the title done. I was going to type it out and frame it for him for his first communion. He's getting his first communion in Galway on Saturday. And I said, grand, I'll type that out, put it in the frame, it'll be lovely. And I walked from the library. I didn't leave it in the library. I walked from the library to our car in the car park of Guilty Church, which is only a couple of hundred yards. And when I got home, the notebook was gone. So I figured to, to the library, rang first thing this morning, no notebook. And um, I, like I don't know what I don't know where to look for it. Okay, it's you done. definitely. Okay, well,
3: you, you you last remembered having it at the library. Yes. You definitely I, had it at the library. I, okay, now, you, did you put it into? Did you have a handbag with you, an no open bag? Handbag, no. No, no handbag. I had gone out
9: yesterday with everything I needed in small pockets in my coat. So there's, there's no way it would fit in a pocket in the coat. Anyway, it's not in it. I mean. So you had uh, it in your hand? I had it in my hand. It had started to rain. I put up the umbrella, so I had the umbrella and this together and i I have no idea. I assumed I got this car with this but when i got when I went to take it out when I got the left. No
3: sign. Okay, um, and you do, so it's not in the car and you've searched the car and all oh, of that. Oh, so car, it's uh, some, and the library don't have it because they closed up shop. They, you know, yeah. they, if they had found it after you'd gone, they'd have it this morning. So we well, assume they, you walked actually, out of the library.
9: Yeah, the girl in the library remembered me carrying it out. Because okay. she had come over to tell me the time was up on the machine.
3: Okay, okay, we're getting closer. So now we've left the library... We with have. with this A4 half an A4 size an pink A4. plastic cover, and yep. you're now walking from the library to the A car park
9: beside the river, uh, just past the post office. And uh, I got in touch with the post office. I got in touch with the credit union. The two big buildings uh, on either side, and no sign And I got in touch with the sacristy in the church. And no, no sign.
3: OK, so we need somebody to walk that route and just see is it on the ground somewhere Are more than likely somebody else has picked it up. Now, if somebody's picked up the notebook. You've no name on it, nothing, there's no no, name, nothing.
9: No unfortunately. And it the only copy of the poem. And as I say, as I was saying to John Paul there, I mean, I, I taught honours English in my time for leaving, sir. I know a good poem when I see one. It is it's extraordinary for an eight-year-old, and of course, to the only copy.
3: Yeah, because he wrote it on that day. He, he probably wrote. doesn't even remember the poem.
9: He put it back to my husband. sure he'll write it again. I said
3: he wouldn't remember what it No, <laughs> and a lovely idea. What you want to do to type yeah. it up and frame it and give it to him on his first sort of communion. That's a really, really nice uh, thing to do. But we need to get our hands on this pink. This notebook yep. with a pink plastic cover, elastic on it. I know the elastic, it holds it together yes, somewhere it. about after five o'clock yesterday because you you to exit the library, the library at five, at five o'clock.
9: Ten. I left the library at ten past five. But as I say, it could have been lying anywhere up to any time because I didn't miss it until I got to death. And I became so convinced I left it in the library that I rang the library this morning and uh, first thing and no they
7: didn't
3: have it and
9: the girl said she remembered me walking out
3: Okay somebody's somebody's picked it up because I'm assuming it's not still on the footpath or on the roadway at this stage somebody has picked it up it was as you say it was a kind of a dirty old evening it was starting to rain so let's hope somebody picked it up quickly that it didn't get too wet Everything is the plastic would have protected okay, that's it. That's true, that's true. Yeah. Okay, And you're heading to Galway for the big day out on We're Saturday. i
9: heading to Galway on uh, Friday morning. So I I really would love to get my hands on it again. OK.
3: And have you many grandchildren, Helen? Uh, three. three. Our
9: daughter is married in Galway and they, she has an older boy and a younger boy, then Rogie. Okay. And, Rogie's uh, the
3: middle child.
9: Rogie's middle and he's my godchild as well. So
3: oh. he's, he's a bit of a chancer. <laughs> <laughs> and, but a much-loved grandson.
9: Oh, I absolutely, I just... Look, i just give you one example of the kind of young fellow he is. I did laugh at him. Uh, during 1916, when he was five, I said to him, I said, Rogie, what you learn in school about nineteen sixteen? Oh, he said, I don't like those English soldiers. Don't you? I said, Why so they came to our country, they took our country. They executed, he said, poor Jesus on the cross. <laughs> <laughs> and on the third day Jesus had to go to the G.P.O. for his rising from the dead. <laughs> <laughs> no, to me he got the two stories and put yeah, the two yeah. together and he just gives me a laugh. Yeah
3: and Easter, Easter in 1916 that he'd been learning <laughs> my <laughs> God you know something the British have been blamed for a lot of things but that's the first <laughs> time I heard that. <laughs> <laughs> I agree with you. I you to a
9: few English friends and they
3: said oh, I GG you blame a friend. <laughs> <laughs> and do you does Rogie and the other kids, do, do they get down to see you much? Or do you have a tendency to go up and see them and go away?
9: We, we're we more likely to go up. We're in less and they're out in my colon. And, uh, yeah, we, we see them uh, as much as we can. We go up whenever we're needed. Sometimes there's a babysitting problem or whatever and we're on the road. Away,
3: you know yeah, yeah, that. and so lo- well, it's a it's a lovely part part of the woods. It's not as nice as West Cork now, but it's it's a lovely part, well, neck of well, the well, woods well, in Galway. Well. Okay, well, we put it out there. Fingers crossed, and you've you've said the prayer to Saint Anthony and all that, uh, have you? Listen, Saint <laughs>
9: Anthony has a bank in heaven from the amount of money <laughs> I have given him, <laughs> and I have again promised him a five euro. Well, five euro, I should be putting more in the bank. No, five, no, five phone euros
3: phone. a lot. Five euros, uh, he's a businessman. Five euros, we'll do him nicely. <laughs> Let's see if we can find this notebook. Listen, pleasure to talk to you, uh, Helen. Please, Trisha, God, the notebook will done. be found. And failing really that. Good, that in, in And listen, and enjoy the day out on on uh, Saturday and give Rogie really our, our best, <laughs> our kind regards. God bless. Mind yourself. Eighteen fifty three 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 one zero three. It would be lovely absolutely lovely if we could reconnect Helen with the notebook and sooner rather than later because we're at Wednesday she needs to get into the library to type it up print it off I mean she'd get it she'd get it put into the frame fairly quickly but we need some time to get her in and get it all typed up and get it ready and obviously she'd be on the road maybe even Friday if if it's if not certainly early on Saturday morning, but she'll probably go up on the Friday, so we need to try and locate that book today. So if you come across it, are you heard of somebody who you know maybe somebody spoke about finding that notebook yesterday, or if anybody is in that general area walking around today because obviously Helen is in Lep, she was only making phone calls this morning, so anybody out and about in Clonakilty, walking from the library in Clonakilty to go to the car park to just keep a lookout for a pinkish coloured notebook plastic cover on it. It's a half an A4 size with the strap on it and she's she's got the the actual poem you see is loose inside in the envelope and you know you just, I'm hoping somebody's picked it up. I'm hoping that it's not already on the ground, that somebody's actually picked it up and has taken it home or maybe a child picked it up but it was after five yesterday so it would have been the time when people are heading home from work. Uh, somebody hopefully has found it so if you can keep an eye out for that please or if anybody knows where it is three three one zero three. here's one from Joan in McCroom and we will get back on to Helen uh, with, with this Helen says Joan says tell Helen to open the umbrella it, she could have closed up the umbrella and would half an A4 it was a big umbrella would it have fallen into the umbrella? Joan says she remembers losing an earring before and when she opened the umbrella, didn't the earring fall out? So it's not a bad, it's not a bad, yeah, because she's, she's, she's gone completely through the car looking for it and it's not in the car and it was too big to fit in a pocket, you know, whatever jacket she had on her. She said, she, she didn't have a bag or anything with her. We will get back. Joan, that's a good one. We'll get back on to Helen and ask her to wish out the umbrella a little bit. See, I, I'm picturing in my head, you're walking along, it starts to ring, and oh God, get the umbrella out. So you get the umbrella you get the umbrella up, and then you get to the car. And you know you're trying to negotiate opening the car door and the umbrella, and you're keeping the umbrella over for you. Well, this would be me anyway. I'd have the umbrella over for, over me for as long as possible to get me into the car without getting absolutely drowned It So, could she have put it on the roof of the car was what I initially thought. You know I mean? You'd put something on the roof of the car and you'd drive off. And we've all done that at some stage. So, that's what I was thinking and it'll come off come off the roof of the car because it was only when she got back to Lep she said that when she went to get it out of the car thinking it was going to be in the car it wasn't there but that's a good suggestion Joan if it was a big umbrella certainly it would fo- it could fall into the umbrella so we will get back onto her and we'll check out uh, that one uh, thank you for that ok keep your gardening questions coming please I can see some gardening questions coming in already for for Peter because Peter Dowdell will be joining us after after half past 12 in the next hour, we've been talking about climate change and what we're doing to our climate and how we are destroying the world in which we live and the amount of species and animals that are dying off and somebody had sent in a text about the herbicide and you know that too much herbicide has been used instead of the old fashioned ways of going out trimming the hedgerows trimming the sides of the road seems the easiest way is to get out there with herbicide and somebody has said Patricia that herbicide that somebody mentioned earlier is absolutely deadly it kills all the life in the soil but not only that it leaches into the waterways something really needs to be done about that 1850 333 103 you're listening to cork today on
2: replay phone and text lines are currently closed
3: some of your commentary coming in to us firstly Somebody was picking me up on something that we mentioned earlier, Jonathan and Banton. Uh, Jonathan was on to say, why isn't Patricia as horrified about the mortal remains of deceased people in Waterford? It seems people are texting in this morning and they're more worried about animals and animal cruelty than humans. Why is this, says Jonathan? What cruelty, he says, did the HSC, the ministers and others impose on the families of those loved ones who had to be laid out in closed coffins and couldn't have normal traditional Irish wake because the way they've been treated at the mortuary at Waterford General Hospital. It seems to Jonathan in Bandon that if people came across a dog on a the street they would pick it up but they'd walk over a homeless uh, person on the street if that person was uh, dying. Can I just say on the what happened the Waterford mortuary. we did cover that quite extensively on the programme when that story broke and we had a lot of listeners who were very upset and were very horrified when that story came out of Waterford that bodies had been uh, de- decomposing and there was bodily fluids on the corridor and I'm conscious it's after 12 and people might be heading for lunch. Can't off the top of my head John Paul might be able to tell us. We actually did an interview we carried an interview uh, about it I think it was with was it with Declan Hurley was it with the local councillor we covered an interview saying that the HSE had reached an all time low when that story uh, came out of Waterford Hospital. So Jonathan we did extensively talk about it it just so happens I think today that there were two cruelty stories uh, came to life and you will have people who are genuine Animal lovers, but you'll you'll have a tendency to find that animal lovers are also people who have great sympathy for humans as well. It's a little bit like a theory I've always believed if you can instill in children a love and respect of animals and let them carry that through into adult life. If a child, a teenager, or a human can't, or an adult can't hurt an animal, then they're hardly going to go on and hurt. Another human being. I've always a great faith and belief in that. And I remember do you remember little Jamie Bulger, that little boy who was taken away in the supermarket by those two boys? In wasn't it in Liverpool a number of years ago and, and he was murdered and it was just a horrific uh, case and what came to light after that was one of the boys that was involved in that murder kind of the main boy who was seen as the ringleader were they 10, 11 year old boys at the time that little Jamie was that they murdered little Jamie but the main boy involved there it turned out his hobby previous to the murder was cutting the heads off live pigeons and I remember straight away thinking my God if he could do that to a defenceless pigeon. Of course he could go on and do it to a defenceless uh, little boy. So I, I always think when you're, when you're, I know, Jonathan, the point you're making, you're, you're talking about the awful stories coming out of Waterford, but I don't think you can knock people that are animal lovers and saying that they don't care about humans because I genuinely do not believe that. I really, really do not believe that. Just by the way, on, on that mortuary in Waterford The latest update on that, I heard he is the Sinn Féin TD for that area, for Waterford, a gentleman by the name of David Cullinan. And I heard him speaking this morning on national radio to say he's had two families who have actually lodged formal complaints about the conditions in the mortuary at the University Hospital in Waterford. They both I think, came to his office and he said to them, go, you need to make a complaint. And uh, he said they're very, very serious complaints and they've done just that. So we'll wait and see what comes out from those particular complaints. And then added on to that, we had the state pathologist office only yesterday saying that it will not use the mortuary at Waterford University Hospital for the time being as the result of the controversy over the conditions. And of course, it was four consultants who penned, the, penned a letter last October was when they wrote to the CEO of the South South West Hospital Group that Waterford is a part of. But it took until March of this year for the group to respond on what was very serious claims. The claims that came in from four consultants. And then it turned out when we looked into the story a little bit more when when we covered it last week or the week before, there's been a problem with the mortuary at University Hospital Waterford. This isn't something that just happened lately. There's been a problem there that was identified back in 2004. The government, it seems, knew that then I don't know who was in government in 2004, but they knew that there was an issue with the mortuary in uh, Waterford and that there was a need for a new mortuary. It was finally approved in 2013. We're up to 2019 and the good people of Waterford are still waiting for a mortuary. And Jonathan is right. I mean, it must have caused extreme distress. You've already Coming to terms with the death and loss of a loved one. It might have been a sudden death, or it might have been a death where somebody had battled really hard against cancer, for example. And, you know, the loved ones are just coming to terms with the, the loss of the loved one. And then for something like that to discover that when they went, when the undertaker went to get the remains to be told sorry it's been left too long and there was an issue with the re- refrigeration but um, you know I think you're wrong to say that people are more worried about animals than humans it just so happens that today we have the two cases that have come to light and actually on that somebody who is an animal lover has emailed Patricia at c103.ie saying Patricia I hate animal cruelty of any kind and while, while I find it sickening as it's happening every day you had Creed on the programme this morning and he was saying it was one off now this is to do with the young calf that was beaten quite badly, and the video footage that seemingly was on prime time last night was all over the internet yesterday. It happened in uh, Cherbourg, in France. Anyway, that's what Michael was talking about. And when I put that to Minister Creed this morning, Minister Creed says it is a one-off and it wasn't Irish people who were involved. Now, how interesting that somebody videotaping that footage was there at exactly the time that it was happening and it was a one-off. The Minister and Irish farmers cannot wash their hands of the welfare of their animals once they leave Irish ports. Surely they have a responsibility towards these animals. The Minister says he has the highest standards for animal export exports well let me tell him and i know this that irish animals are ending up in countries with no animal welfare do you know patricia that rescue animals being transported to other countries will have volunteers from the rescue, accompany the said animal to make sure that their journey is as happy as an experience as it can be and that they don't arrive stressed. And I have to say, I did not know that. And I do know that we export a lot of our dogs, go over to England, greyhounds and lurchers in particular, because they seem to be much loved pets in England. Hard to rehome here. And a lot of them do go to England. I did not know that the rescue team because we have a lot of animal rescue groups who, who send them over to England to be rehomed I did not know that they travelled with them according to this emailer that's exactly what happens um, the emailer says that is how high the standards are as a nation of supposed animal lovers we are a disgrace this was again evident with the rabbits story that you mentioned earlier that were lined up on the street in Kana. no empathy, no emotion and certainly no love of creatures that should be allowed allowed to live and die in the war, war wild, not for the fun of a few tips who think this is good nighttime fun. Now my blood pressure is rising again," says this emailer to Patricia at c103.ie. Our lines remain open. It is gardening questions that we are looking for. Please, if you have a gardening question you can get it into John Paul or you can text or whatsapp me at 0862103103 the C103
5: Cork Diary
2: with Cork
3: County Council supporting businesses
2: supporting communities serving Cork visit corkcoco.ie
3: the Gwales Skull in Clonakilty, uh, they're holding a fundraising table quiz. It's going on in Scannels Bar in Clonakilty tonight at 8 pm. All proceeds will go to the Gwales Skull classes, which also, of course, include four autism classes. Copine Agricultural, Historical and Cultural Society, they're hosting Finola Finlay, giving an illustrated talk on the history of stained glass windows in West Cork churches. That'll be out tonight at 8. Venue is St Joseph's Church in Castletown. Kenna, Castletown, Ahiol, and Enniskine churches will all be included and all are very welcome to attend. Tuesday of next week, Mallow Golf Club will host a Play in Pink ladies open four ball competition. All proceeds raised will go to the National Breast Cancer Research Institute. Entry fee is 15 euro for visitors, 6 for members, and the timesheet is now open. Please call the pro shop to book your time slot and the North Cork Beekeepers they've got a number of beekeeping demonstrations that will be held during May and June detailing the working and maintenance of beehives new and junior members are particularly welcome give Ivan a call at 087 055 6053 and Gaggin Community Hall Field Committee, they've got a fundraising table quiz that'll be on in the Ashtree Bar Old Chapel in Band, and That's on Friday night, half past eight. All are welcome. And Mayfair in Ballyhass National School in Cecilstown will take place next Sunday from 1 pm to 4 pm. Interactions will include a barbecue, bouncy castles, bric brac, lucky dip, toys, and books. Teas and coffees will be served, there'll be cakes and a silent auction. Designer boutique, pony rides, lots of events happening. It's a great, fun filled day for all of the family. That's the Mayfair in Ballyhass National School. Admission is free, and all are welcome next Sunday.
2: John interview fails So what would you say your weaknesses are?
8: Um oh I suppose I'd have a weakness for the drink. <laughs> but only during the week. I mean I'd hate being hungover on my weekend, you know?
2: Uh-huh. Why do you want to work here? Well, I'd like to
8: move on from my current employer as I've a whole legal issue thing. <laughs> Bottom line, nobody told me I couldn't sell the company car.
2: Think you actually have the right answers? Then C103 wants to talk to you. We're hiring a sales executive to expand our busy team. If you're ambitious, creative and think you've got what it takes, email your CV to HRManager at C103.ie today. C103 is an Equal Opportunities Employer and part of Wireless Group.
3: I want to go to the phone lines because Michael has contacted us. Uh, good afternoon to Michael.
1: Hi, good afternoon. How are
3: things? I'm uh, very well. You want to discuss planning and the planning—the dreaded planning process. A lot of people would uh, see it as you've been having problems trying to get planning, is it?
1: Yeah, like, I mean, you just said it all there like, you know, that most people complain about it. Like, that just says it all. What is the council doing? Well, the answer is, it, it was in your statement, they're doing absolutely nothing. They seem to have no accountability at all. You know, um, there is a huge need for houses in Ireland. And you imagine that one of the simple things that the the Minister of Housing would have uh, put into place is a process and procedures whereby this is streamlined. Nothing has been done. You know, they talk about it and they do nothing.
3: Do you know, Michael? Does planning and planning regulations does it vary from local authority to local authority? Does is oh, it, sure, it does. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I
1: mean, if you go down to Kerry, there, um, you know, you'll see absolutely beautiful, stunning, modern, contemporary design houses. You come up to Cork here, and um, I, I, I honestly don't know what what goes on up there with these guys. You know, but, like, I have a neighbour across the road who wasn't allowed to put cornerstones on his house because it didn't suit the area. And this house is about 200 metres back from, uh, you know, a a secondary road. It was laughable. You know, they interfere on things. Like, I'll give you a simple indication. Um, I put in planning for a house myself. Now, the council would not... One of the things when they came back for further information is that they wouldn't allow... They would not allow me to have the chimney breast outside the house. You know, you know, they wanted it inside the house. Now I explained to them that I do not want a chimney breast taking up space in my living room downstairs and my bedroom upstairs. Okay. Like, what point? I'd like to have it outside, so I have a nice rectangular room. No, they would not give me the planning permission for the house because of the chimney. So.
3: And the, I, 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 I okay, did they say the reason why they didn't want you to have it on the outside?
1: Yeah,
3: aesthetics. It basically says
1: that it's aesthetics, you know, like practicality, common sense has gone out the door with these guys. You know, they're just ticking boxes. It's almost like as if they'll delay the process so they're guaranteeing themselves jobs. I I mean, I can't put my finger on what is going on up there in Cork County Council. Like, if you start from the off, the whole process needs to be changed. You know, I applied for a planning permission last year. Now, it took seven months for me to get planning permission. um, And in that seven seven months, I had to get uh, a request for further information on four occasions. Now, on three of those occasions, I was issued with new requests that hadn't been issued on the previous request for information. Now, I haven't changed my house. I haven't changed the design. I haven't changed the location. So it's either the the council um, are incompetent, they're not reading the files properly, because why would they be asking me for further information for new things each time?
3: So your your argument is that when your initial planning proposal went in, that if they needed additional information, they should have straight away seen, well, we need to check up on that, we need to find out what he's doing with the chimney breast in your case. But you're saying three times they came back looking for... Different pieces yes. of information. Okay,
1: that's three times. And like that's got, you know, uh, uh, and is there? Requests.
3: Okay, there isn't a cost involved in that, is there? Yes, there, there are. Is. You know, this okay. is the
1: other thing. There's no accountability at all for the council. Like, I should be able to turn around to the council and say, "Look, um, I'm very sorry. Um, this is going to cost me an extra two thousand because it's you know some kind of an environmental impact study or whatever." Um, the fact that you didn't do it requested the first time around well who's going to cover the cost of it now and it's and and some of these reports because you when you submit them you know when you submit a request for information it takes four weeks before they come back to you on it some of the reports themselves require a separate four week so you're talking eight weeks in some cases and you can't talk to the council you can't argue with them you can't disagree with them because you know you know, they're somewhat like children. They get their backs up,
5: uh, and well,
3: that, they yeah. There is, there is the fear. They're they're there, top there is the pile, fear yeah. that you're going to rub them up the wrong way, and then you're never you're never going to get the the, the planning. That's right. And would you have heard from other people who've been complaining about the the oh process God, just look, taking too long?
1: Everybody. It's not other people. It's everybody has the same the same issues in relation to them. Now, here yeah. is the other issue that I have with with the whole process. I start to apply for planning. Now I have to put it on the newspaper. I have to put a sign up outside my gate. Everybody in the locality knows that Michael O'Brien is building a new house. So everybody has the opportunity to raise their concern. So now I go through the whole planning. It takes seven months. Now at the end of the planning, at the end of the planning, I get approval finally. Right. Now I have to wait a, wait a further four weeks. For anybody to put in an in, in an objection. Now, uh, My point here is, if anybody wants to put in an objection, they should do it during the planning process. When I get approval, that's it. I should have approval. But my scenario now is, I finally got approval in February this year. And on the last day in the afternoon, my planner contacted me to advise me that they're sorry there's, there's an objection gone in. So I have oh to wait four weeks God. for somebody to decide to wait four weeks themselves, sticking the objection. Now, that then goes back to on board Planola. And on board Planola normally takes five to six months before they make a decision on that. Now, I know somebody will for the council come on and say, no, no, we have now reduced it down to 18 weeks. You know, that's all well and good if they do it within the 18 weeks. But, but even, even,
3: even, even, even 18 weeks... After your initial seven months.
1: No, after my initial seven months plus
3: the four plus, weeks. Plus the other months. Learned, this, you're so you're, to, you're up weeks. to 18. You're, you're up to eight months and now you've got another 18 weeks on top of that.
1: That's correct. And here's the oh. joke about it. Anybody can make a complaint. Like, I honestly believe that you should be made put down a thousand euros when you submit a, 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 a planning um, objection. Objection. And it, like the person that put in the the objection to my house, what he has put in, he's put in five five issues. Three of them have already been dealt with with the planning, so he should be penalised for wasting time. But he hasn't already reviewed. But it would he?
3: W- but would the person objecting be aware of that? Be aware that those Absolutely. issues have already been dealt with.
1: We've already spoken with the person. And the person is like telling us of some problems that he already has, you
3: know. Okay. All so right. Don't, so don't, I don't, want to, go, I don't want to go down the line of, to of, of identifying the person or, no, or, or what the issue is about. But you I'm are, aware you're, of that. you're now at the situation where it's gone to onboard planola.
1: That's right. And like the point about it is, I'm bl- like, why do I have to wait 18, 20, you know, realistically speaking, you're talk, talking five to six months? I've had approval. So why should somebody be allowed to come in and make an objection?
3: And are you re- are you ready plan? are you ready to start building?
1: Well, I'll tell you what. Um I'm not ready to start the building because I can't do it now until on board Finola comes back after four or five or five or six months and makes their decision based on this guy's uh, objection which which has no validity at all. So me, my wife and my two kids will now stay in our uh, mobile home for a longer period of time while the cost of materials are going, going up. up, while the cost of building are going
3: up. That's so, true. Right right. But, yet a, I suppose is the I'm, I'm waiting is for somebody to come in and say, we can't just allow people to be putting houses up, you know, wherever they want, willy-nilly. And I don't think, Michael, you sound like a very reasonable man. I don't think you're saying that either. You're no, saying that there has to be a planning no. process, but we need to look at the delays within the planning process, the way the planners are dealing with people, and the, the other issue you've raised on the, on the objectors. So where are you at? How many weeks into the, if you can get it, within the 18 weeks? How many weeks are you into with that? Where are you I'm, at now?
1: Uh, I'm about three, week, three weeks into the 18 weeks. Now, by the way, when I say 18 weeks, this is the current deadline that the Council have set. It doesn't mean that it will be 18 weeks. Yeah. I, uh, I know from experience and other people building that they're talking five to six months. You know and and the thing about it is they will let it sit on their desk until the last day. It's the very same. Every time I got a request for further information, it came in the answer the, the result came in on the last day, every time. Oh, yeah. Yeah. like the way it's, I see it, and, and we're coming into that. See if it should be done. You Any are, objections to be dealt within that within that period?
3: And when you started this process, Michael, did you envisage by May? Where are we? Uh Eighth of May, twenty nineteen. Did you think the house would nearly be built?
1: Uh, to be honest with you, we didn't overly. You know, look, we know the way they are in the Cork County Council, and the, uh, you know, whatever we we know the way they are, and um, so you know, we, but we did. Anticipates that when we got the planning, that we would be able, able to go ahead, would not be stuck. Like we honestly, we honestly thought that we would be into the summer this year then we thought we'd be in it at the Christmas latest next year or this year now it will be probably summer next year depending on you know how yeah, quickly people bi- turn around
3: and as well you want to build with good weather you don't have to be starting building in, the, in the middle of December alright Jim says Patricia I heard one of the reasons planning was turned down for a house for a couple building on their own land was that there was grass growing in the middle of the road where the house was to be built and the fella said I didn't set the grass there so it seems ludicrous some of the reasons the planning engineers come up with the couple by the way didn't get planning at the end of the day and they ended up having to buy a house instead. There's always that anecdotal feeling of people that when you do submit for planning for a one-off house there's always the feeling that the powers that be would prefer if you moved in to an existing housing estate that you That's bought right. in a more urban area, I and mean, people in rural Ireland have been saying that uh, for years. Michael, will you keep us updated on how you get on with the planning? And we'll keep our <laughs> fingers we'll keep our fingers crossed for you. Okay.
1: Thank you very much, Listen, thanks, thanks for
3: sharing much. it. Bye 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 bye. And you know, I know if we were to open phone lines on planning, we would fill pro- program upon program upon program. People get very very frustrated, and I know I absolutely accept we can't just have. You know, glass palaces and, um, you know, pink mansions and whatever you're having yourself. We can't have them built all over the place and there has to be some kinds of rules and regulations. But it's just the way the process, it just seems to take so long. And it is frustrating to hear Michael say, you know, you put in you you put in the plans for the house. Somebody in the planning department sits down and go, goes through it. Surely, if you're going to identify three or four things wrong, you identify it on the first day. Get it back out to the young couple, who are, and it is usually young couples trying to build a house for themselves and their family, and they want to live usually on land near parents' houses. They want to live on land, you know, close to maybe where they grew up. Maybe they're farming, whatever. Um, and you would think to try and accommodate the people to build the house, particularly with the way the housing crisis is at the moment, and people finding it almost impossible to rent houses and the cost of rent. And you have people that's not unheard of living in mobile homes on the land while you. Waiting for the planning to come to come through, and it looks like they've been there for last winter. I have a funny feeling they're going to be there for this winter as well, and that's not fair. Eighteen fifty three 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 one zero three. John Paul is taking your calls. I can see the gardening questions coming in, uh, so we better take a break, and uh, we'll chat with uh, Peter Dowdle the Irish Gardener. Gardener. dot com coming up next.
2: Rob Stewart is ready to rock Cork on May 25th.
5: And C103 is celebrating with a massive cash giveaway.
2: Win 3,000 euro with the Rob Stewart 3K triple play. Stay listening for these three songs.
5: Song one. Song two. Song three.
2: When we play them uninterrupted and in that order, be caller 103 to
5: win 3,000 euros. Remember
2: our number 1850
5: 333
2: 103. The Rod Stewart 3K Triple Play. Only on C103.
5: This is the Cork Today replay on C103.
3: And someone has been just a couple of texts in on the planning uh, issue. Mary makes a good point. Listening to Michael's, you could really sense his frustration, couldn't you? Uh, Mary says some people refuse planning because the planners say it's the size of the house and that it's too big and it won't fit in. It won't fit in with the other houses in the area. Yet she says there's large parts of this country are full of wind turbines and they don't seem to have a problem giving planning when it comes to wind uh, turbines. And Peg. Was on to say, would I give a message to please a shout out to the Butterfly Cloyne Diocesan Pilgrimage. To knock. It's on next Sunday, and a bus will leave from across the church in Botford at 8 a.m. And bookings and further information are available for her good from a good self, Peggy, at 087 206 7067. But it's the, the pilgrimage is on next Sunday if you want to go to knock, 087 Peter Dowdle uh, joins me, the Irish com. Good afternoon to you, Peter.
10: You know, I was up in knocked just a couple of
3: weeks Were ago, you? and
10: it—it it, I was, I was, I—I—I—I I, 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 I wasn't on a pilgrimage, but okay. I did say a prayer when I passed it. Good on I—I I was uh, on my way to um, Kane's Garden Centre in Care Morris, and I was also—I was up there a few times because then I was on my way to the Homeland Store in Westport as well, and it's just a gorgeous, really, really gorgeous part of the world up up County Mayo, and. Uh, you know, it's it's one we tend not to think of because we're so spoiled with with our countryside down here in, in Cork and Kerry. But it really is lovely up there. So I just the I pilgrimage.
3: think it's because it's so far away. Unless you're doing what Peggy is doing and going off on a pilgrimage, people have a tendency to go there on pilgrimage. But it's just kind of too far away. Other than that. Yeah, to, yeah you we, know. we
10: tend we tend not to think it, But look, hopefully they'll say a prayer for us all. In
3: absolutely. OK, let me get straight into questions. There was one in, as soon as I came on air this morning, uh, a text arrived uh, in saying, good day, and I don't know whether she's doing this in Australian accent or not, so Michael in Bantry says, good day, Peter. Should I give a feed to my Australian Tasmanian tree fern?
10: No, would be the, the the short answer, and it probably is a, an Australian accent. Yeah, uh, no, they, they they don't need feeding really, and they're, they're one of these plants, the tree ferns. They're a stunning, stunning architectural plants. They like somewhere shaded. I'm actually looking out the window here at one at the moment. Uh, they do like somewhere kind of shaded from the wind and from direct sunlight, but they don't need much in terms of nutrients. They don't even develop any underground roots. They take all their 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 moisture and their feed from what's in the air. So no, you don't need to feed them at all really.
3: They just need I've got one in my garden that I, I lovingly protect every winter. You just because they're native to Australia, you just need to protect them from if we get a very cold spell.
10: Yes, and the wind and things like that. Yeah. The, 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 the Australian climate is somewhat different to ours. So yeah, you need to protect the, the crown of the plant from the extreme cold and, and you don't want them sitting in a, in a windy or waterlogged area.
3: And then you watch, I call them my baby ferns as they pop out every year then when the new ones are growing. They're, they're quite stunning at the moment. Okay, anyway, I digress. Ted says, hi, I have bare patches on my lawn. It's already been treated with green force and I'm wondering is it possible to reseed the bare patches? Okay, Green Forest
10: is a brand, so it depends what Green Force product they use. In other words, uh, Green Force do do um a liquid lawn weed killer which he may have used, and they also do a weed and feed product which he may have used. They they also make the Lawn Gold which I often talk about. Um so depending on which product he used, it would would determine the answer. Is, is the if it was the if it was the Lawn Gold, yes, you could reseed immediately. If it was the liquid weed killer, uh, I imagine that a few weeks ago if he's left with bare patches or if it was the, the weed and feed, then I imagine that was done a few weeks ago if the patches are now gone bare. It means that where the weeds were, they've now died and he's left with patches or perhaps he applied it a bit too heavily. So I think in any which case, if it's if it's two or three weeks or more, uh, you could certainly reseed now yes and now is actually fine I kind of say unfortunately because I wish it wasn't I wish it was hot and dry outside but it's not it, 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 it's mild and it's damp so it's perfect condition to be reseeding
3: Yeah and uh, ideal for grass growing weather Okay now I know John Paul sent you on a picture of uh, this is somebody who was sending this in on behalf of their mother my mother's ponsettia this is a photograph of it she's had it since December she's wondering what is the next step this is from Helen in Helen in Castle Magna it's her ponsettia so you've got the picture
10: I don't know if Helen is on the right person, because if my mm-hmm. pancetta was doing as well as Helen's was, me, I'd be very proud of myself. So. I
3: haven't seen <laughs> the picture. Is it quite stunning? It's,
10: it's fine. It's fine. there's really little enough for Helen to do. It's still showing good red foliage. It's good and full. It hasn't dropped any of the leaves. Some of the green leaves might look a bit hungry, but it'd do no harm to give it some of the bio gold houseplant food. It's in a very bright, sunny window. Now, maybe they just moved it there for the photograph because it's on a a kitchen counter, so I imagine it's not always there. Um, But whatever Helen's doing with it is right. Just stand it in some water. It looks maybe a bit dry and a bit hungry, but what Ponsettias don't like is uh, drafty conditions. They don't like extremes, so they don't like it to get, let's say, very hot during the day, down to very cold during the night, so conservatories aren't really suited to it. next to a radiator or next to an opening door or an opening window not suited to it because it's too drafty and the, the temperature fluctuations are too much. So somewhere consistent uh, where it's getting consistently good light and the temperatures between night and day isn't that severe. I would uh, stand it in a boat of water for about half an hour once a week should be enough uh, and apart from that it, it looks fine if it was there if it was dropping its leaves, I'd be concerned but it's not it looks fine
3: Yeah I've, I should jump on and send me on the photograph it looks it could, it could be the middle of Christmas with that it photograph it's, yeah. it's great and uh, you'll find some people are great I had a friend of mine she's uh, since departed and would you believe it's her birthday today so that's coincidental ah. we're talking about uh, about uh, her pon- the Poncetius. she had the most magnificent Poncetius that she kept for years and years and years and she always says the trick is once you find the spot in the house where the Ponsetia is happy don't move it, just leave, leave well it there leave, leave, leave it there
10: well, I would agree completely with her,
3: yes Okay, let, actually somebody else has sent in a photograph to me on WhatsApp and it is a picture of three lovely pots with gorgeous coloured primroses in them and it says, hi I'm just wondering if Peter could tell me uh, will these primroses come back again next year and what to do with them when they finished flowering
10: Okay. No, I don't have the picture in front of me. But no, I have. If the primroses are the the commoner garden uh, yellow primroses, then they yes, are. There's a play.
3: yellow and a red and a kind of a pinky one.
10: Okay. Well, they may be then they're probably what we call F1 hybrids. So uh, they're 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 treated really as a bedding plant. So they're really just grown for one season, uh, and they're lovely for that one season. My advice is. Like you probably want those pots now for better summer bedding, which would be fine to take them out, and you could plant them in in the garden. They 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 possibly will come back. Put it that way, the F1 hybrids tend not to be as tough and as resilient as the the native species which we grow. Uh, they're the kind of thing if you plant them and if you, you if you surround them with TLC and do everything for them, they'll probably curl up and die. But if you throw them in the compost heap, they'll probably thrive. You know what I mean? If you forget about them, but those kind of things. So plant them. Uh, in the right place where it's semi-shaded, give them the right conditions, turn your back on them. They they either will or they won't. I know that's a very vague answer, but with my experience with planting out the F1 hybrid polyamorous or primroses like that, sometimes they do come back sometimes they don't I know it's a bit vague but it's as good as I can give you I'm afraid
3: Okay Hi I gave a hydrangea to an elderly relative which was kept indoors while it was in bloom It then got transplanted outdoors into another pot and it hasn't thrived since I recently repotted it into a bigger pot but I noticed that the new tiny shoots are rusty brown at the tips Advice please
10: I would say A lot of people may not be aware, but there are varieties of hydrangea which are just grown for indoor use. So there are indoor hydrangeas as well as outdoor. And I suspect that's what you've got here, that you've got a, an indoor, a house plant type of hydrangea should, so it shouldn't be outside. Um, I'm guessing from the, from the, from the way the question was asked that it was in flower indoors kind of over the last few months. So. Outdoor hydrangeas obviously wouldn't have been in flower over the last few months. They're late summer, autumn, as you know. So it's either a, a, an indoor type or it's an outdoor type that was forced uh, for the for a particular time of the year. So if it is an outdoor type that has been grown indoors, you need to acclimatise it. You don't just bring it from your nice warm, centrally heated house to the great outdoors in Ireland. Uh, it, it won't tolerate it. So you would need to acclimatise it, but I suspect it's just uh, an indoor an indoor variety.
3: I should stay with that and what is and it's important to know what is indoor or outdoor um, in order to hang on to your plants. Mary was on to say she got a present of two plants. The plants, the name on the plant is, I think it's Viercea, V-R-I-E-S-E-A. John Paul said she spelt it out, John Paul. She wants to know if they're indoor or outdoor.
10: Can you spell it again for me?
3: V-R-I-E-S-E-A. And John Paul said he googled it and it does exist. So I don't know whether we have to get back to that one or not because I don't know. No, the,
10: I think the I think they're a type of, I'm going from memory, but I think they're a, a type of bromeliad or a type of acmea, which are, are an indoor plant. They're a house plant. Um, oh yeah, I've
3: got, I can see the picture of it now, yeah. Yeah. can you yeah. Yeah,
10: they're, they're, they're an exotic looking kind they're of gorgeous. Plant. Yeah. They are, and and they're gorgeous and there's, very fair, there's
3: different varieties of them isn't there you can get them in different yes, different colours yes, I'm,
10: yeah. I'm right it's on the right I'm on the, they yeah, I you I, are. the name the name was getting the cogs going alright they're also very good in terms of air purifiers they, they clean a lot of the they take the CO2 out of the air like most house plants anyway but they take the CO2 out of the air and produce a lot of oxygen so they're a good plant to have in the house but they also remove a lot of the pollutants and dust oh. particles which could be in the air as well so they're actually a great plant but yes they are for indoors
3: And they are described as being a great house plant, um, and are not only easy to maintain, but they're interesting and colourful uh, too. Uh, So there you go. Okay, uh, back to texts that are coming in. Why are the leaves of my strawberry plants going brown? Says a Douglas listener.
10: I wonder, does the Douglas listener, are they growing in a pot or are they growing in the ground? And I, su- I suspect it's drought, uh, not drought in that we're not suffering from a drought, but if they're growing in a pot or a strawberry planter, that they could have dried out even temporarily. No, it won't do long-term damage, don't worry. Just cut off any, any of the brown leaves. So whether it's, 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 your other option is it could be a, a fungal infection. Strawberries get a thing called strawberry rust and there are other fungal infections as well that they suffer from. But whether it's that or drought, my advice would be the same. Uh, to, treat, to just remove any brown leaves. If the browning is very um, widespread throughout the plant and if it's causing a problem, you could remove most of the leaves and then treat it with a solution of copper sulphate mixed with water, which is a good broad spectrum, safe to use uh, fungicide. But I imagine it's just a couple of leaves which have probably dried up, to cut them off and you should
4: be safe enough.
3: Mary has a pear tree for the last four for she's growing it for the last four years. And for the past three years, it's only produced one pair. Do you know if that's one pair every year or just one over the last three years? She's cut it back. So said, I cut it back every year. What am I doing wrong?
10: I wonder what time she cuts it back. That could well be the, the answer. The timing here is crucial. Uh, I would, my advice for what it's worth, though, would be not to cut it back this year, not to cut it back for at least a year and see if that improves it, Um the correct time to cut back a pear tree is kind of during midwinter December January time, and then leave it leave it produced, but you see you do, you, you could end up if you, if you don't know what you're cutting, you could end up cutting the the fruiting spurs for this coming season, so certainly leave it for the next twelve months, don't cut it at all at time of blossom, which is kind of around now we've just missed it it's where we start of may So during April it'll be in blossom, so March onwards you could feed it with something like the nature safe either liquid or granular, which is a, a very very good uh, organic plant food, the nature safe one, or else just sulfated potash. The, either one of those will promote um, good blossoming and therefore, obviously if it blossoms if it's a self-fertile variety, actually that's another thing, if I'm talking to myself now but if it's a self-fertile variety, the, the the blossoms will turn into pears but if it's not self-fertile, it needs another pear tree near it to to pollinate it. So Another suggestion is if you do have the space, plant another pear tree uh, near, nearby the one you have and that will, will, will help to pollinate it. Even with the self-fertile varieties, I feel they'll do better with another variety near it.
3: Okay, Veronica says, I am reseeding my lawn. I've removed all the earth from my flower beds and replaced it with earth from a different area. Is there anything I should add to this? As my miniature dahlias have rotted without opening for the past few years.
10: Okay, so she's reseeded the lawn. Yeah, I've reseeded
3: my lawn and I've removed all the earth from my flower beds and replaced yeah. it with earth from a different area. So she's thinking okay. that the earth in the flower beds isn't great. Is there anything yeah. else she should add to it, particularly bearing in mind that the, mini da- the miniature dahlia is rotted in the yeah. other earth before well, opening? De-
10: definitely. The two things I would add, depending on what you're going to be planting in it, but the two things I would add, number one is the, the one I just mentioned there, the nature's safe. You can get that in a granular form which is a really, really good organic and environmentally sound granular uh, general purpose plant food. So work that in now to the soil as you're planting and before you're planting. That will give you dividends. It'll help the roots to establish into the new soil day one. So that'll be the first thing I'd add to the soil. And the second thing, if you're worried about the, the fungal infection, which was stopping the dahlias from opening, so if you're wondering about that still being in the soil, first of all, if you're not planting dahlias there again, I wouldn't worry about it. But if you are planting dahlias there again, uh, again, what I mentioned for one of the other answers there on the strawberries, a solution of copper sulfate mixed with water, I would do that here as well. So if that fung, if the fungal spores are still in the soil, uh, hopefully the copper sulfate mixed with water should, um, should take care of that for you.
3: Bridget says, uh, Hi uh, Peter, when is the best time to take slips from camellias to root while flowering or after flowering and how do you pot them?
10: Okay, it's after flowering. Um, so it's kind of late summer, it's July-August is when I would do it, June-July-August even. Uh, you, you want a good kind of six inches of this year's growth. The reason I'm kind of hesitating here with the answer is because they're not that simple, they're not that easy to, to, to take from cuttings. Um, commercially, when, when when we grow them from cuttings, uh, under-soil soil warming cables are used because they do need good, warm soil to promote. They don't take that easily and just take your six inches, cut it at an old, put it into a bit of compost. That's what you do and leave one or two leaves on the top of the cutting. Um, but it's not that successful, I'm afraid. Give it a go. The time to do it is June, July and August. About six inches. Cut Uh, six inches from the growing tip down, remove the terminal tip, so remove the actual growing tip, leave one, maybe two leaves on the cutting. The base of the cutting is a node, which is quite simply uh, where a leaf meets the stem, it's that swollen part of the stem, into a bit of rooting powder, into compost, uh, and then hope for the best. I suppose if you put them into a propagator, if you have a little propagator, even a home propagator, that may help to, 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 to promote roots as well.
3: Okay, that's where we leave it uh, for today. Are you out and about any time this week? Or?
10: I am all over the place. This, it's city season, we have Chelsea Bloom and everything coming up. This Saturday, I think uh, from memory this Saturday, I'm in Raheen and Limerick at the Dairy Gold store there in the morning, um, and coming up, but we'll talk more about it closer to the time, on the 28th of May, I'll be speaking in the Glucksman Gallery in UCC about something I'm passionate about, which is um practising sustainable and environmentally sound practices in all walks of life. I'll be talking, the Corribini cooks will be talking... Bonita Brown from the National uh, Biodiversity Centre will be speaking, and we're, we're trying to impress upon people that this the green agenda and living sustainably
3: is for all there. of us. It's for, it's for all, all of us. Every yeah, day, we had that day. UN report yeah. this morning. Okay, we we'll leave it there. Uh, we'll talk next week. Thanks for that, Peter. Uh, have a good week. That's uh, Peter Dowder of the irish dot That's where we'll wrap it up for today. Thanks to John Paul McNamara, Nick is next. I'll talk to you tomorrow morning at ten o'clock. <laughs>
2: 45,000 fans will rock to Rod Stewart at Parky Cueve on May 25th. I love you! you know over five times as many that's 250,000 people now listen to c103 and cork's 96 fm every week source channel or ipsos mrbi 2019 one hashtag choose radio c103 plays cork's greatest hits we deliver great news and sport and always the greatest giveaways you just want celebrity six <laughs> Now, to say thanks for listening, we bring you another big way to win. The Rod Stewart 3K Triple Play. Listen every day for more on C103.